You can be seated, and I ask that you pray with me. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that we can come and gather together. We pray that we might continue to hear a word from you, having heard scriptures read, and we pray that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, that we might take something away and be transformed just a little bit into your love in the world. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're continuing, and we have one more week next week, of our sermon series, Old Stories Made New. And what we're doing is taking some of the stories that we perhaps have learned in Sunday school and then moved into adulthood and find ourselves looking back at those stories with wonder, uh, confusion, and sometimes even kind of distaste, as we talked about last week with Joshua and some of the violence that's there. Well, we definitely have a little bit of violence today, especially since you probably don't remember me reading the last two verses of the story when you were in Sunday school, if you found yourself in Sunday school, or you don't read that in the children's books that they have about David and Goliath. Usually with many of the stories from old, we forget about them, or we avoid them, or sometimes we hold on to them. But there is no story from the Old Testament, I think, that has held onto more tightly than this story. One of the things that I often try to do is explain Scripture as if people don't know anything about it. I try my best to do that because I know that there's always someone that's either watching online or in the sanctuary that if I just say, you know the story of the ark, they might think to themselves, uh, no, I don't know the story of the ark. What are you talking about? Or, you know, just try not to take things for granted, even though I know many of us have studied the Bible for many, many years. It's just a way to do that. If I can do that. I try to do that for most things, except for this story is probably one of the stories that it doesn't need to the story of David and Goliath. Because it's used throughout, it's a cultural story. And in America especially, we've grabbed on to the story of David and Goliath, so much so that newscasters can use this biblical reference and people know exactly what they're talking about. And people do it often during, you know, the month of March, right? With March Madness, it's David versus Goliath. Although my, I'm always Goliath because I'm a Duke fan, so I have no sympathy for David in those stories. But that's a side note, and I have to get my Duke reference in as uh, early as possible when talking about David and Goliath. But it's a story that we capture onto. And I remember in, in when I was growing up, and I was like kind of in like my like elementary school in the 90s, and some of you who are millennials might know these two movies as a profound impact on you. One is the football movie Little Giants, if you remember that movie. Uh, it's like a story of these little ragtag youth and they go up against these like big black like like the big like the black team it's like i don't know whatever like they always wear a black jersey like the most intense team and they go up against them and somehow they win against them the other one's mighty ducks and for me i'm gonna talk a little bit more about that later but mighty ducks was very profound on me because i grew up playing hockey in minnesota so it had something near and dear to my heart both of those stories are stories of david and goliath and you find yourselves rooting for David, the small, scrappy team in the stories, and hoping that they will take down the giants that's in front of them. And we see it in all sorts of places within culture or within our lives that people can reference this story of David and Goliath. 
Well, I want to first take a look at the story itself, and I want to unpack just some of the stuff I think that might be what we don't often see that's kind of underlying in the story. The first of all, what was super interesting about this text is that out of most of the biblical narratives throughout the Old Testament, this text goes into more dialogue detail than almost any other biblical narrative. I mean, it is super detailed, both in what's going on in the story and what every single character is doing in it. So it would behoove me not to go into just a little of the detail of the story. Because where we find ourselves is the people of Israel making their way through the land of Canaan, trying to go into the land that God had promised them in a covenant that they would have a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're going into this land and they're conquering these different armies. And last week we talked about walking around the walls of Jericho and, you know, God's was, you know, and we talked about some of the problems with that. But anyway, that's the context is what's going on. And God had been with them and they had been defeating armies after armies. And then they find themselves up against these Philistines, these kind of like people that had made their way from Crete and landed on the western bank of like the Palestine area. And they, they were there, but the story is that they had this giant, nine foot tall, it said, a soldier, champion that comes out to battle them. And the Israelites, although they had been through so much, and that they had seen the win after win, and that God was on their side, had come up against a wall. And they found themselves afraid and dismayed, not sure what to do. And then up comes David in the story. And mind you, David is this story, like if you remember last week, we talked about how the Bible kind of is kind of put together intentionally to guide towards a future. Well, this is especially the case. It's like the backstory of the king of all kings for the Israel, like the nation of Israel, which is David. When people throughout history looked at who is the king that led Israel into its prime, it was King David. So just like we have stories of old, of like George Washington and the cherry tree and, you know, of Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, this was a narrative of the past of David that would kind of launch him into the future of his kinglyhood. But here he is not a, an adult, not a king, not any of those things. In fact, he's just a youth, around 12 or 13. And like many youth around 12 or 13, they can be very enthusiastic and come with lots of questions, right? So here David comes, he like wants to check out what's happening and he leaves the sheep behind and he goes up to the front line and he starts asking, hey guys, what's going on? What's happening? Why do you guys look so sad? You know, you, anyone know a middle schooler that might ask some of those questions? Like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? Oh, that's interesting. Well, why are you guys so afraid of this Philistine? Why, I mean, he may be big, but God's on our side, right? And he just starts asking, asking, you sort of see this narrative unfold. And then all of a sudden, David's older brother starts chiming in and realizing that David is getting kind of annoying. And then David's older brother is saying, David, what are you doing? You left the sheep. Go back there. You have no business being up here. And you can kind of see like this like 12, year, 12 13 year old boy kind of just like, okay, whatever, you know, kind of side skirts his older brother and starts going around and asking more questions and finds himself in front of the king, like the king, right? Saul, the leader of the entire, uh, entire Israelites. And it starts ask, telling Saul, like, I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. And it takes some banter back and forth. And Saul didn't think at this point that anyone would be able to defeat 
Goliath. And mind you, we know that Saul was like shoulder height, you know, like everyone else in all of the uh, Israelites had, was below his shoulders, what the scripture says, in a different place. So Saul was a pretty tall guy, right? He's a pretty tall guy, probably a pretty, pretty strong warrior, but for whatever reason, he just lost all hope. And so here was like little handsome David. That's all we know about him. He's small, but he's ruddy and handsome. They added that in just to make sure we knew. But he add in that, and here he is. I'm going to fight Goliath. And no one, no one thought he was going to do it. And so eventually they're just like, okay, whatever. You know, we're going to lose this anyway. Just, okay, fine. But at least take some armor and take the, you know, my stuff. And then you can just imagine David just kind of like barely able to move, right? And then he does what is even more audacious is he just like throws it aside and he's like, all right, I don't need any of that. And he goes and grabs a staff <laughs> and then goes out into the bank of the river that had been dried up and grabs some smooth stones. And he's like, I've got this. I've got this because God is on my side. And then we go up and then, you know, the rest of the story is there. And mind you, before our scripture reading, it goes into great length great length about the detail around Goliath itself. The, you know, clothing, the armor that he had, weighing like 5,000 shekels, his, you know, short and his spear, and the, just the tip of his spear weighed like 600 shekels. I, I don't know what that means, but sounds heavy, right? And so like, he, there he was with all of the armaments that you would expect of the greatest warrior in the world. And then there David was, scrawny little David, Handsome, though, but ready to go into battle. And here uh, is just something that, like, kind of fast forward a little bit. So the story of the Bible stories, right, is that, you know, God is on our side and that we can conquer anything, right? Because David beats Goliath. So we never have to be afraid. But here's the thing that I don't think that they often tell us about that is that usually when we interpret that later on in our lives, we think that David has to beat Goliath, but it's almost always within the idea that David beats Goliath at Goliath's own game, right? Because it's a battle. It's a battle. But when we put that into the context of real life, it doesn't work out like that. Right? I don't know if any of you have ever been up against a Goliath and then thought that you would win. Because you knew that David can beat Goliath. And guess what? It didn't. And going back to Mighty Ducks for a minute, just to unpack that story, okay? It's the story of these like ragtag hockey players up against the big hockey players. And I will tell you that I have tried to, you know, master most of the Mighty Duck techniques that they have, especially uh, the knuckle puck which if you're unfamiliar with hockey, it's fine. You maybe have grown up in Hawaii, but knuckleball, you get the stick, right, in hockey, you know, to play. Anyway, you put the puck, it's normally flat on the ice, and you put it up like this. So you kind of click it up like that. And then you like take a slap shot, which is like, like that. And then as you take the slap shot in the movie, the puck just starts like going up and down. And then all of a sudden, like just waves right past the goalie's glove and into the net. Well, it doesn't work like that. In fact, I even watched one time in the middle of a, like a game when I was in middle school, in the middle of a hockey game in middle school, a kid tried it, tried to do this. It failed terribly and the coach was super angry with this kid because it does not work out like that. 
And unfortunately, it might pass a couple times in college football, but usually the, the, those little like tricks and like nuanced stuff that, you know, the ducks did and the little giants do ends up not working out for the Davids of the world. And we can find ourselves in a similar situation when we see ourselves up against an obstacle that we want to believe we can conquer because David conquers Goliath. And then we find ourselves saddened and dismayed, just like the Israelites, when we come up against that obstacle and it is not budging and David is not winning. But here's one of the keys that I think about this text when I look at it, is that one of the most important things about this is that David, I believe, abandons the expectation of power that Goliath embodies. David abandons the expectations of power that Goliath embodies. See, Goliath was huge. He had all of the armor, all the armaments, everything that was needed. And David was given an opportunity to kind of have some of what Goliath had. But instead, he chooses the impractical, silly slingshot and a staff. But most importantly, in the end, it wasn't his accuracy, he would say, or his skill. He probably was telling a lie when he said he ripped open the jaws of the lion to get the sheep out, right? Might have been a tall tale. In the end, he would attribute all of what was a success to his reliance on the bedrock of God and that he was unshaken and didn't fear. See, because we, although we have in our cultural awareness the story of David and Goliath, I would say nine out of ten times, every single one of us will choose to be Goliath when given the opportunity. Do you want to choose the nicer car or the, you know, car that may break down on the way up the poly? Do you want to have the job that, you know, tells people what to do? Or do you want to be the person that serves the people that are around us? Do you want to have more money and more influence? Or do you want to be content with what you have and to find ways to be happy and fulfilled now? Nine out of 10 times, our culture will tell us to choose to be Goliath. And it does it in so many different ways. And we often will fall into that temptation. But David chooses another path. David chooses those five smooth stones, one of which being the truth that he knows where power truly resides. That the power isn't in the chainmail or the sword or the javelin or the size. It's not in the 401k and the Tesla and you know, the, up, the you know, promotions. That power truly resides in this rest and kind of resilience and the faithfulness of God, that David holds on to that, 
to bring him through the battle. And see, David not just knows that where power resides, but he's also willing to look in unique ways to find new solutions to the situation. He knew that there was a dried-up river nearby that he could find stone in the first place because he spent time as a you know, sheep herder. <laughs> he had lived in the environment around. And he knew probably that this Philistine was going to come after him with all the power and that he would have to think of a creative way to make it through this battle. But in the end, God saves God's people through a reliance on God. And so when I look at sort of the stories of David and Goliath in our lives and those obstacles that we face, I wonder if we can find ourselves trying to rely a little bit more on the resources that David has versus all the power and might that the community or the world around us might tell us we need. And I don't know what the Goliath is in your life. It could be that lost relationship. It could be a diagnosis with cancer or some other ailment. But how do we choose to be like David in the story? And this is where I think that in the end, the story of David and Goliath is one that's relatively easy to go back to, the stories of old. Because that simple narrative that we teach our keiki to trust in God and we can overcome Goliath, I believe to be true. But we don't do it by trusting in God and then building all of the armaments of Goliath, the power and the might, and then going after Goliath with everything that we have attained. We go through life one step at a time, trusting that what God has given us now is enough. My story of the past has brought me here. And that whatever we're called to, you know, God calls us to things, that God has given us what we need to see it through. That we don't need more, but that we have enough. So I invite us to be like David in the story, though all the temptations are to be like Goliath, and to know that God has made you enough and that God has given you all that you need because God's presence is with you. And in the end, that's what David believed more than anything, that no matter what happens to me, God goes with me. And that's a truth that each one of us can hold true to. No matter how dark your night, no matter how giant the Goliath, God is with you. Just don't try to be Goliath. Because <laughs> God is with us. I invite you to pray with me. Loving God, we thank you that your presence is always with us. And no matter what challenges we face in this life or what obstacles are there in the world that seem immovable, unchangeable, 
that as we rest in the truth that you will never leave us and that you give us more than enough to take each day by day by day. Help us trust in that truth. So much so that we might see the Goliaths of the world fall by the power of your presence with us. And we pray that for our lives, for the challenges and the battles that we face, for the injustices throughout our community and the world, for hunger, racism, sexism, for all the powers that be around us. Help us believe, like David, that you're with us and you've given us a different power to take down the Goliaths. Amen.